Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we talk about the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Biden's State of the Union address, updates on the Russo-Ukrainian war and the hysteria surrounding it, as well as what we've learned from the war so far. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, the U.S. Freedom Convoy, dubbed the People's Convoy, has arrived in Washington, D.C., or should I say they've reached the city. They haven't gone into the city. Um, and so far, the government hasn't frozen bank accounts yet. The convoy, having learned from the experience of the Canadians, has opted not to go into D.C. itself. Instead, what they're doing is they're driving in a really big circle around the capital and are essentially putting the city under siege and plan on using the large number of trucks and other vehicles that are participating in the convoy to basically create an impenetrable wall around the city. This way they can avoid being arrested because you're constantly moving and you can avoid a lot of the other things such as uh, potential sabotage to your trucks Sabotage to gas. Uh, actually, the gas issue will be something interesting to see how they deal with if they're constantly moving. So, we'll, uh, we'll see where that goes. But uh, anyway, that's what they're doing now. They've reached D.C. And we'll see what happens now. But given that the state of, in the State of the Union, which we'll talk about in a minute, we've, the government has essentially declared COVID-19 no longer exists... Uh, so, uh, we'll, we'll see what the convoy does, because, uh, based off of what I saw in the State of the Union, it seems like the current administration has bypassed the issues that the convoy has assembled to demand be addressed, which were the lockdown measures, which are now being eased and have essentially, again, in the Union Address, the State of the Union Address, Sounded like they just said it was over now, and we're just going to move on. I'll get to that later. Um, so, we'll see. Uh, the landscape has changed since this convoy has started. We'll just have to see where it goes. That's, that's really it. We'll just have to see where it goes. It's in a, it's in a bit of a weird spot, because the issues that they've assembled over have somewhat been dealt with and at the very least you have the government pretending that COVID no longer exists anymore so we'll see we'll see meanwhile Australia they plan on building a new submarine base to house U.S. submarines and probably their own future nuclear submarines as well with that AUKUS deal and well that's Australia for you uh, Russian citizens are now being evacuated from Cuba and you have over 100 Rohingya 
fleeing from Burma who have made land in Indonesia. India is set to send around 8,000 tons of wheat to Afghanistan, and peace talks between Russia and Ukraine resumed today. And we'll see if anything comes of that, or if they go back to shooting each other. I'm betting on the second option, but, you know, anything can happen. Anything can happen. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the rapid fire news for today. So we'll get into the state of the union, I guess, since this the rapid fire has been so short. I'll just jump straight into the meat a little bit, and I guess I'll do the my ad placement later. <laughs> so let's get into the state of the union, because last week Biden gave the state of the union, and in it he swung, from what I observed, he swung hard right on all his talking points. He straight up abandoned the COVID policies regarding masks, lockdowns, and vaccines. And I I alluded to this when I was talking about the trucker convoy just a couple minutes ago. Completely abandoned the COVID policies that he ran on as president. Uh, And now, I guess we're... I guess the administration is hoping that no one will notice... The change? No no one will notice uh, before the midterms? I don't think that's going to work out well for them. Uh, I I really don't think that's going to work out well for them because you're talking about people whose livelihoods were destroyed or severely, irreversibly altered, I should say, over the course of those last two years. And he promised to end COVID when he got into office, didn't end it. In fact, we had another wave, but luckily for us, that wave was Omicron, and Omicron is so non-lethal to people compared to the other variants that it's effectively acted as a vaccine. It's just that non... It's that much of a non-issue, Omicron. So, that part is good, you know. But, um, there was issues getting vaccines out to people. Then there was the issue of trying to force vaccines onto people. And that, too, people lost their jobs over his vaccine mandate that he tried to implement through OSHA. And then it was shut down by the courts. But by then, uh, I can count myself among this crowd, I was working at Panera. And I'd been working there since, what, my senior year of high school. I was there for the weekends. But you get I got fired. Because I, <laughs> I wasn't going to either take the vaccine uh, or get tested every week to get a negative test. Because even the tests are faulty. You have instances where you have people taking the test uh, and getting different results each time. There was famously Elon Musk who took, took the test three times in one sitting and got two different results. So... W- testing is off. That's off. And then you're going to force people to either get the vaccine or get a test that doesn't work. And then, we, as we're learning gradually, the vaccine itself doesn't work. You have doctors now coming out, and many of them were resistant to this at first, but now that time has gone on, you have more and more hopping onto this bandwagon, which is that natural immunity, which, if you remember back in 2018, 
20, all these experts pretended didn't exist. All the experts pretended natural immunity didn't exist back in 2020. That wasn't a thing. Herd immunity wasn't a thing back in 2020. Now, fast forward to 2022, everyone's back to talking about natural immunity because apparently uh, the immune system has changed in two years. Uh, I don't think so. I think people were just lying. But as I digress, we now have people talking about how natural immunity is not only just as good as a vaccine, but you're hearing doctors talking about how it's better than the vaccine. And it's, uh, we should have known this. We, we really should have known this. And if we didn't, then certainly the people who specialized in this should have known this, but they didn't. And you had people lose their livelihoods over their either their error or their deliberate attempt at screwing people over. Their lies, either their error or their lies, have screwed over millions of people in the country. I don't see them forgiving that so quickly, especially if they've been at the place they were working at, making a living for years, and then all of a sudden, over some arbitrary decision, which wasn't even allowed to go through, because the court shot it down. It wasn't even allowed to be implemented on businesses. You had people being fired over something that essentially didn't exist. The mandate didn't exist. And you had people getting fired from their jobs over it. I don't see people forgetting that or forgiving. So, I think that's gonna... That's going to bite them in the ass in the midterms. Um, when I say them, I'm talking about Democrats primarily because they're the ones in charge of Congress right now. They have courtesy of the vice president, a slim one person tiebreaker majority in the Senate. You know, assuming Manchin and what, what, cinema don't defect to the other side on any given vote, which they've been doing recently. So. Democrats don't even have a majority in the Senate, either. But they're going to be the ones blamed for these policies. They're, they're going to be the ones blamed. And But not even counting COVID, not even counting COVID, you have a whole number of other issues that are probably going to come back to bite them. Uh, yes. You have issues like... Inflation, which is at record highs and still rising so fast that people are watching in real time the declining value of their dollar. Something that previously happened over the course of decades. Alright? Because uh, my famous calculation that I came across when I was preparing my anniversary episode was that a dollar in 2020 was worth three pennies in 1900. So three pennies from 1900 was worth a whole dollar in 2020, meaning that it would take 33 bucks in the year of 2020. It would take 33 bucks to match what a single dollar was worth in 1900. So, But that's devaluation over the course of 100 years, well, 100 plus years. The Federal Reserve came into being in, what, 1913? And has been devaluing our money ever since. So over the course of 100 years, you, that's a pretty big jump. 
but that's what like the standard oh it's only two to three percent inflation so we're good it's that nonsense but now we don't have two to three percent inflation we have uh on the official books we have seven percent inflation but we know they're lying and there are other numbers suggesting somewhere between 11 and 14 percent i'm more inclined to believe those numbers than the seven percent figure uh, because the same people that gave the 7% inflation figure are the same people who said it was transitory and are now saying that it's not transitory anymore. So, I don't trust the liars. I'm going to trust the other numbers. But you have that. But that happens over decades. But now, with this high inflation, you're able to see the devaluing in a much more condensed time frame. Much more condensed. You can you can witness it in real time. Uh, the price of goods last week versus the price of goods this week. The price of goods last year, even, versus the price of that same thing this year. And those rises in prices, which are caused by inflation, are then compounded by the high gas prices, which are also rising. And I guess as a side note, I'll say that those two issues might end up being good for us in the long term. Now, hear me out and hear me out, hear me out. I'm not saying that they're good. I'm saying that they might lead to positive changes in the long run because the rising inflation is going to lead many people, uh, first and foremost, to see the devaluation of their currency. They're going to be able to see it. And that's the first step. And from there... You're going to have people who now able to see the devaluation of their currency in real time, not, oh, over the course of the last hundred and something years, we've lost, uh, our dollar is worth 33 times less than what it used to be. But you can see it now. So then you're going to have people demanding the stability of our currency so that it stops dropping in value, so that it holds its value. People are going to demand that. And then they'll demand not just that the currency hold its value, but that the currency be strong as well and hold its value so that each dollar goes farther. And those two things are going to be very, very, very beneficial to the American people. Those two things alone, I believe, will help solve the issue of the disappearing middle class. Because wages... When you look at the wages of the American workers over the past couple decades, you see that they sort of stagnate. Now, this is stagnation from like the 60s, 70s to now. Now, over that course of time, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, the middle class was doing just fine. But fast forward to today, the middle class is struggling, even though it's the same amount of money. But in real terms, the the buying power of that same amount of money keeps going down because of inflation. So had we had uh, our currency hold its value, had our currency held its value since what the 60s and 70s, even if wages did not rise, you'd still have, in relative terms, people in the middle class being well off, people being able to get ahead because the dollar held its value. Or should I say, if the dollar held its value. So, 
the issue we face today is not necessarily that we need higher and higher wages. It's that we need the dollar to hold its value. So what's the point of getting a $25 minimum wage if the dollar becomes, if the dollar keeps losing its value and then in five, 10 years, you're asking for the $35 minimum wage. So this issue with inflation, which is going to allow people to see the inflation, I believe that in the long term, it will lead to positive changes, ultimately culminating in a strong currency that holds its value. And I pray for this. I would love to see it. That's what I think is going to happen uh, over the course of you know time. You got to give these things time to happen. But I think the hardship right now might lead to something beautiful in the future. I really think that uh, that's inflation. Uh, but also, uh, you, the high gas prices may also lead to something beautiful in the future. And what might happen there? Well, the Ukraine war partly contributes to the high gas prices. It, it does. It, it'd be a lie for me to say that it doesn't. But this is because of domestic policy. All right. It's not because... We are dependent on Ukraine gas. We're not, we're not dependent on gas going through Ukraine to get to America. It's not because we're dependent on gas from other countries. It's that we're not producing oil ourselves. So what you have is a choice, essentially. You have a choice by the American government where we have chosen import oil that we could be producing and when I say that we're not dependent on these other countries I don't mean that we don't import from them I mean we're not a country that doesn't have energy we're not well Europe right we have plenty of energy under our feet we could get it if we wanted to and for a while we were and you saw average gas prices coming down to what two and a half bucks under the Trump administration if you were in rural America, you were looking at flat $2 a gallon, which is just absolutely glorious compared to the horrendous nightmare I saw on my drive home from work today. I saw 4.30. Oh my God. I saw 4.30. I swear just a couple weeks ago it was 3.70. It just keeps going up. <laughs> but we... <laughs> We choose to import oil from these other countries when we don't need to. And that's the key point, because we have the energy. We don't need to import, but we've chosen to import. So when gas and oil prices go up due to disruptions in uh, international politics, and that means that when you import gas like that, when you import oil like that, the cost gets offloaded onto the consumer. So if you're making the choice to import oil from other countries, and right now, ironically enough, we're getting oil imported to us from Russia in record numbers. When you choose to import oil under conditions like that, what you're really saying is that you're choosing for your people to pay higher gas prices. And that, that's what you're choosing. Because we don't need to do this. 
the Trump administration showed us that we don't need to do this. We have the oil. We don't need other people's resources. We have everything we need right here up to and including rare earth. We don't need anyone else's resources. We have everything we need right here. So the decision to cut production here with regulations and taxes and removing of leases uh, for drilling on federal lands, for not completing Keystone, the pipeline, all those policies have led to the situation where we are importing more oil. And now that there's disruptions overseas, the price of that imported oil has gone up to uh, $100 a barrel and rising, which means we're paying more for gas when we really do not need to. So these high gas prices are also going to lead to something beautiful, in my opinion, because people, just like with inflation, once they're able to, they're able to see it, they're able to see what these policies are doing to them, and they're going to reject them. The high gas prices, which combined with pre-existing criticisms of the Biden administration for shutting down the Keystone construction, for canceling the fracking leases on federal land, those criticisms, which are, were already there, will gain steam from these high gas prices and will lead to people demanding that we produce our energy here so that we are not vulnerable to things happening over there. Uh, especially when the things happening over there, and I'm talking about Ukraine, Middle East, Taiwan, you, you name it, the things happening over there have nothing to do with us. We're not over there. So why are we paying higher gas prices because they're at war when we could produce it here? If we produce it here, there's no disruption. If we produce it here, it goes straight from the oil field through the United States itself by truck, train, or pipeline to the United States. If it starts in the United States, it doesn't have to go anywhere else to get to the United States. So the high energy prices are a choice. And people are going to choose no. And they will choose to go back to those $2 a gallon, uh, $3, 2 to $3 a gallon, depending on where you are. If you're in Chicago or a big city, you're probably looking at 3 dollars if we go back to, you know, 2019 levels. But, that, uh, shockingly enough, that that's mercy compared to what we're dealing with. Now, I, I haven't been into the big cities since, um, what is it, last summer, uh, I can't imagine what they're paying. Uh, I, I think they're probably inching up on that $5 a gallon. I pray for their souls. I couldn't do it. But um, these hardships we're going through, I think, will lead to some beautiful changes down the line. Um, and I really do think that. I really do think that. Uh, but it's going to suck in the meantime having to deal with inflation and high gas prices uh but it will probably lead to something much better in the future and that's something to hope for so definitely something to hope for uh there's also and well since we're talking about gas and energy there's also been criticism on the biden administration for removing the sanctions that the trump administration put on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline but me personally I don't see that move as being a negative because you guys know where I come from. You know, I'm, I'm the isolationist in the room. What happens between Russia and Germany 
isn't my business. If they choose to make a pipeline, they choose to make a pipeline. There, There's no reason my government should be going out there trying to place sanctions on other people's pipelines. Focus on America. America first. America first. So, removing the sanctions, I saw that as positive because we don't need to be involved in that. It, it was a deal that was mutually consented upon between Germany and Russia. There's no need for U.S. involvement on that. Uh, especially, I mean, I, I'm lost, alright? I get it. They're supposed to be our allies, but where Europe gets its energy from really is not my problem. It's not my concern, it's not my problem, it's not my business, and it is neither the concern, problem, or business of my country either. So, criticisms of Biden over removing sanctions on Nord Stream 2, I don't feel are necessarily warranted from an America First perspective. I mean, he can undo the sanctions of everybody, including Iran and North Korea and Cuba, as far as I'm concerned, especially Cuba. I think we need good relations with them. We don't need another Cuban Missile Crisis. So he could undo all the sanctions in the world. But I'm going to expect that he's undoing sanctions on our pipelines and undoing restrictions on our energy extraction in the process. Because that's America first. But I think we might see that in the future. Uh... Germany has decided not to approve the pipeline. Well, they've they've chosen not to finish the certification of the pipeline. We'll see where they are in a couple months and whether they're still holding firm on that stance. Uh, they've also Germany has also promised to meet the two percent requirement uh, recommendation for NATO members, two uh, percent of their GDP going towards the military, and they've promised to up their defense spending. We'll also see where they go with that in a couple months as well. This could all just be bluster and nothing real. So, we'll definitely see, you know, lots to look out for. But uh, back to the speech, though. What I noticed was that the Afghanistan withdrawal and COVID, some of the defining stories of the last year and the year before that, in the case of COVID, were noticeably sidelined within the speech, and Biden, supposedly, has completely reversed his stance even on immigration, now believing we need to get the border under control, which is sort of a, uh, him passively throwing Kamala under the bus, because she's supposed to be border czar, but she's never visited the border. She went to Texas, but not the border. Uh... Instead, we have people in our government obsessing over Ukraine's border and the sovereignty of Ukraine and how you can't just violate someone's sovereignty. You know, I'd really love it if they would, you know, you know, just show just a fraction of that resolve, just a fraction of that sort of talk and feelings and you know, with regards to our border and our sovereignty, you know, if, if they were going to place sanctions on somebody for violating sovereignty, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to see sanctions on, you know, well, actually, no, I, I don't like sanctions. But if we're going to have sanctions anyway, you may as well put them on someone who's sending people across our border and not dealing with the issue like <coughs> Central America. <coughs> uh, <laughs> 
if you're gonna put sanctions on anybody, they should be it for letting these millions of people just casually drift across our border. Because it's gonna be hard to stop them when they get to the American border, but it's easy to stop them when you're talking the Mexican border or the Guatemalan border, because those southern borders are much, much shorter. It's much easier to manage. It's a, it's a choke point. When you look at Central America, it is a choke point going all the way up to the Panama Canal where it's at its narrowest point. It, it's a choke point. It should be easy to stop these massive flows of immigrants, especially since they're coming from not Central America, believe it or not. They're coming from South America, they're coming from Africa. Some of them are even coming from the Middle East. In which case, you'd have to get on a plane to get to even get to South America to start walking up here. And at that point, I know for a fact that they know how to get here legally, and they've just chosen not to. So I, the, I would I wish my government would take our border as seriously as they take the Ukrainian border, or at least as seriously as they pretend to take the Ukrainian border. Uh, they took half the measures towards securing our border as they promise to make for securing Ukraine's border. That would also be nice, but I'll digress on that. Uh, but yeah, it seems Biden has apparently reversed every single stance that he ran on up to and including policing, where the defund the police candidate is now also in favor of funding the police. And he he overtly said, you don't defund the police, you fund them. And I'm just like, wow, that's incredible. Uh, and there's people who are going to believe him, whether that's out of hope or out of ignorance, there are going to be people who believe that he's had this incredible change of heart or that he's held these positions this entire time. But, uh, uh, it, it was very strange to watch and especially when he mixed up Ukraine with Iran and, uh, there were, there were a number of moments in the speech where I, I stopped what I was doing. I was playing Minecraft while I was listening, and I stopped what I was doing. Re had to rewind while watching the the live stream. And I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, there was also a, a Congress, somebody in Congress holding up Ukrainian flags in this way. I'm like, oh my goodness. But at the very least, they didn't pull what the um, they didn't pull that thing that I think it was what Lithuania, uh, where they had their parliament members where they were standing, they had their flag, and in front of their flag, they had other parliament members putting up the Ukrainian flag. And it's like, whose country are you governing right now? So, luckily, my the folks in our Congress were not uh, slow enough to do that. I, but uh, definitely... Uh, the speech was something. The speech was something. I'll, I'll definitely give it that. I will definitely give it that. I wasn't expecting to hear what I heard, but I heard it. So, I'll take it for what it is and hope that the issues we're dealing with, courtesy of this administration, lead to brighter things on the other side. So, uh, we're just going to jump to this little ad break and we'll get to the rest of the meat in a moment all right and we're back to talk about updates to the russo-ukrainian war we are now on day 12 so what do we got what do we got 
Russian and Donbass forces now control nearly the entirety of the Luhansk Oblast. So for those unfamiliar with an oblast, think like a state in the United States, something along those lines, or like a, or like a province in China. So that, that's sort of a way to look at it. They now control the nearly the entirety of the Luhansk Oblast. And they had about two-thirds of it last week, and then it didn't move much until last night, when they captured nearly all of the remaining third of that territory. And this large and really sudden territorial gain likely suggests, or at least it suggests to me, that meaningful Ukrainian resistance in the Donbass has been broken. And I say this because the Donbass is where active combat troops had been deployed since 2014. So this is where most of the troops with experience in actual fighting have been. This is where the trenches have been dug. This is where you had major concentrations of artillery and heavy weapons systems already there. So you didn't need to move them up to the front. They were, they were already there. That was the front. So you had all these weapon systems. All these troops that had combat experience, all these troops in trenches, and they've had their lines just broken through in Luhansk. And if there was any place other than the Dnieper River where Ukraine's army could mount a strong defense, those trenches were it. Those trenches were it. Ukraine is flat. There is nowhere for you to hide in Ukraine. It's flat. And the Dnieper River is a, a really big river. So if you're not going to defend yourself in, at the river, you're going to defend yourself at those trenches. The trenches are overrun. The, the trenches in Donetsk are all that's left. Because they've been almost, Ukraine has been almost kicked out of the Luhansk region entirely. And... If there was a place for them to mount a, a strong defense, those trenches were it. Because remember, they had artillery, they had active combat troops there. The, the, the troops with the most experience, the troops with all that heavy artillery and weapon systems, everything, all that readily available fire support. And they've still been broken. I think meaningful resistance in the Donbass region has been broken, and likely we're going to see meaningful resistance in other places start to break as well, because that was, that was the most entrenched position that the entire Ukrainian, in the entire Ukrainian military, in all of Ukraine, the most entrenched position were the, literally those trenches. Aside from those, you have cities. So... With those trenches being overrun, Ukraine is going to be on the back foot in Donbass from this point moving forward. Once they lose those trenches, you can't dig in anymore. You can't dig in because Russia's not going to give you the time to dig in either. They're, they're going to keep pressing, pressing on. They're going to keep bombing you and they're going to keep shelling you with their own artillery so that you don't have the opportunity to dig in. They're going to hit you with missile barrages. Like, once their trenches in the Donetsk 
which are already being outflanked, which actually already are outflanked because of how much land Russia has secured in Luhansk, they're going to have to pull back. And you're not going to be able to stop until you get to the Dnieper River. Because that's the only meaningful, physical, geographic barrier that you could stick to and mount another strong defense. So, meaningful resistance in the Donbass, I believe, has been broken as of last week. And as we head into this next week of conflict, this is week two now. As we head into the the rest of week two, we'll see what new gains Russia makes. They might go for Odessa. But uh, another thing is that the pocket around Nizian is getting tighter and tighter by the day. So that, that pocket is quickly closing and it may only be a couple days before it is closed completely. Another thing uh, is that... Where is it? Where is it? Ah, yes. Another thing that has popped up in the war that I've noticed is the presence of mercenaries and foreign volunteers. And this part is actually pretty interesting, because so far we have information suggesting that volunteers from America, Sweden, the UK, uh, India, Lithuania, and even Mexico, have all these countries have had volunteers go to Ukraine to fight on behalf of the Ukrainian government, and numbering around 16,000 people. On the flip side of this is that Russia has reportedly hired Syrian troops to assist them in urban warfare operations in Ukraine. The likely targets that I'm looking at are Kharkov, Kiev, and Mariupol, and probably Lviv, if, if slash when they get that far, depending on whether Ukraine fights it out to the bitter end, or if they capitulate earlier, because the peace talks I have resumed as of today, so we'll, again, let's see if anything comes from this, as the Russians will keep reaching out, or at least they're willing to keep reaching out for now, but I, I'd imagine the things Russia are asking of the Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian government are currently unwilling to concede, and we'll, we'll see if the destruction of the Ukrainian military changes their mind, but I have a feeling it still won't. Dealing with Nazis. The last time Nazis came to power in a country, you had a total war. Um, but that country was Germany. Today the country is Ukraine. And Ukraine is not going to be pulling a Germany. And So far it looks like they're not even pulling a, a Napoleon. When Napoleon had to fight in France, where it was this masterful campaign... No, it looks like the Ukrainians are just losing. Uh, so they're, well, I guess they're doing one kind of Napoleon. If you know your history, <laughs> it ain't the good Napoleon either. But um, it seems like we have very interesting developments. Uh, volunteers, mercenaries. Uh, I'll, I, I'll get a little bit more into mercenaries in a little bit. But uh, very interesting to see these developments in this war. A lot is being learned. And I'll talk about what 
exactly we, or at the very least that I've taken away from this conflict, and I'll, I'll just say things that we've learned, just because that's, it's, it's more inclusive if you don't mind my language. It's more inclusive if I say we've learned it instead of me, me've learned it. But um, before I get to the sort of the lessons that are being drawn from this war, even as we're only on day 12, because there's a lot that can be learned. The first major conventional war that's been fought in a while between two well-armed countries with two meaningful-sized militaries. Ukraine has 200,000 troops, uh, almost a million reserve. Russia has, well, a lot more than 200,000 troops, but they've decided to only use 200,000 for this invasion. Uh, they have more that they could use if they wanted to. They'd probably have to start calling up the reserves to fill in gaps in other posts and garrisons. But um, before we get to the lessons of this war, we'll talk about the Ukraine hysteria. Uh, because last week, uh, we, we talked about the unhealthy obsession people have developed over Vladimir Putin and everything he says and does. But this week, I'm going to cover the other side of that coin which is the unhealthy obsession people have also developed in this very short period of time over Ukraine. And now it's an unhealthy in the sense that they're super duper pro Ukraine, but instead of super duper uh, hate Ukraine, like they hate Putin, uh, but similar things, themes pop up, which is, you know, they don't really know anything about this place. But over the course of last week, I have been inundated, absolutely inundated, with pro-Ukrainian and anti-Russian uh, propaganda. I'll just cut straight to the chase. It's propaganda. Uh, you know it's propaganda because six months ago, Ukraine was synonymous with Hunter Biden, Burisma, the DNC server hack, and was overall just a symbol of the corruption in U.S. government with the whispers in the background, just whispers of Nazis, neo-Nazis, real neo-Nazis, even being active in this country. So that, that, that was the case six months ago. Six months ago, the fear of a war between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine was limited to people who, like myself, routinely covered political and geopolitical news. That was the situation on the ground six months ago but fast forward to today everyone is now talking about how they stand with ukraine when six months ago these people couldn't have cared less about ukraine and it, it, truth be told they still don't because months from now they will all either have forgotten about ukraine or will then retroactively denounce the war and the war propaganda as I do today. Uh, they're, they're, not gonna, they're not gonna fight for Ukraine. I can assure you that. Then very, 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 very few will, and you can see that with those volunteers. But people, overall, they're not gonna lose two seconds of sleep over this. They're really not. I mean, you see this war happening and you see these people getting so emotional over it. 
And then they, they go to bed, wake up the next morning, and go to work. They come home, they have dinner, they watch Netflix, and then rinse and repeat. The war doesn't mean anything to them, really. And it certainly doesn't mean anything to me, but it gives me a gives me a staging ground to sort of beat down on domestic policy things that I disagree with. So uh, I thank the conflict for that. But um, yeah, it's just it's hysteria. Six months ago, no one no one knew about Ukraine. I mean, people who have never even said the word Ukraine in their life are now suddenly obsessed with it and obsessed with this desire to to do something now i have a i have a history with that phrase and it's uh given my isolationist leanings you can probably guess what that history is but you can't go too in i'm i'm sure you've seen it if you guys go on youtube you guys go on you go on your your tiktoks and your your insta books and your face grams <laughs> I'm sure by this point you've all seen it, where you can't go two inches without running across something about standing with Ukraine, or something with a Ukrainian flag in it, or Putin has miscalculated, or something along those lines. And the thing that goes through my mind, uh, after dealing with all this the, this flood of propaganda and, and talking points, is... These people don't know anything about Ukraine. They really don't. Uh, they didn't. I'm willing to bet that they didn't even know where the country is. And I'm willing to bet they didn't. They don't know it's been in a civil war since 2014. I'm willing to bet they don't know the government was overthrown by a coup that was staged by the United States. I'm willing to bet. They didn't even know Zelensky's name before the war broke out, but now he's a war hero. Now he's now he's oh I wish I wish we had a leader like that. And, and yet, in spite of this, everyone apparently stands with Ukraine now, a country again that they know nothing about. But that introduces a potentially interesting conundrum. Potentially, I say that, because we know that Russia has the denazification of Ukraine as one of its stated aims for the war. Only time will tell if this is true or not, or if anything really comes from this aim, but they say they want military tribunals when this is over. So what if, when Russia rolls into Kiev or Lviv, whichever one it is, before the war ends, and they start exposing Ukrainian government officials as, and outing them as Nazis, beyond reasonable doubt, just outing them as straight Nazis. And people see that, oh snap, these people actually are national socialists. What then? That's what I ask, what then? Will they still hashtag stand with Ukraine then? We'll see. It's an interesting potential conundrum that might pop up 
if Russia's war aims are truly legitimate and we get to these military tribunals and we have actual Nazis being put on trial. That's going to be that's going to be something to see if if they really do start walking away with the with neo-Nazis in handcuffs going to life in jail or even execution depending on what the Russians choose to do with them. And if that's the case, and you have a whole bunch of these government officials who are Nazis in Ukraine, maybe even Zelensky himself. Well, I mean, we don't know. We don't know anything about this guy. Again, people didn't know his name before the war broke out. We, we don't know anything about this country. So what if all these people end up being neo-Nazis? And maybe not all, but a very large number of them end up being neo-Nazis. What then? A lot of people, I'll say this, a whole lot of people are going to have some scrambled egg on their face. And it's going to be very ugly for them. It'll be ugly for them because I don't support, I don't stand with Ukraine. I'll, I'll make that clear. That's not my country. That's not my problem. But a lot of people who've made an emphasis say that we have to do something. For Ukraine, we have to stand up to Putin. If all these people in Ukraine end up being neo-Nazis, well, that's that's gonna they're gonna have a fun time justifying their support for this country and these Nazis. They're gonna have a really fun time doing that, and I will have a much funner time watching them and maybe even reporting on it on the podcast. We'll we'll, we'll have to see how these things go, uh, but. Ooh, that that's that's the potentially interesting conundrum, you know, you know, you know we love our speculation on this podcast, but uh, we'll see where things go with the war, and if that happens or not. It'll be interesting to see if it does. But moving on, what can we learn from the war so far? Because I have a number of things that I'll just list off to you now. So, the first thing we've learned is that, first and foremost, armed conflict as a means of resolving international disputes is still a relevant tool, and it is still on the table. That's the first thing we've learned, uh, just from the fact that we're even talking about a a war in Ukraine at all, and not some trade war, and not a, a sanctions war, an economic war, or cyber attacks, like like a number of people thought, and I'll just use Tim Pool as the example here. Uh, pretty good news, but um, he he's sort of my primary example for these sorts of arguments about fourth and fifth generation of warfare. He's a staunch believer in it, and uh, again, I'll just use him as the example, because what we have here is not. I'm going to hack you. I'm going to use information warfare to turn your population against you uh, to make them flip to my side and then we annex them through peaceful means. And then I use diplomacy and trade and all these other things. And I use spies. Those are things that are present in the conflict, but those are not the conflict itself. Those are aspects of the conflict those are not the main dimensions of this conflict. So, the first thing we've learned 
is that armed conflict as a means of resolving international disputes is not obsolete. It is still relevant and it is still on the table. The second thing we've learned is that boots on the ground still hold the final say in who wins an armed conflict. Uh, and well, going back to the first thing, people argue that internet, international interconnectivity and global trade and these sorts of things mean that wars like this couldn't happen. This war in Ukraine also proves those notions wrong. As I myself have argued, trade has usually been an, a means or a reason for war. Because trade is powerful. You control trade, you have power. Trade is the lifeline of countries. So if someone else controls your trade, well, you're in danger, potentially, if they don't like you. Trade is a reason and a half to go to war. And it has always been. So this idea that trade would stop war has routinely been foolish. It's It was floated a number of times, up to and including... Before the Second World, the Second World War, and before the First World War, where Winston Churchill famously said that a war wouldn't be possible because of globalization and a more interconnected and globalized trade, and then you get the worst tragedy of the twentieth century that set Europe on the path that it would go. It set Europe on the path that would lead it to World War Two. World War One did that. And trade was supposed to stop it, but it didn't. Armed conflict has always been on the table. But people didn't believe. People like to believe the trade argument. And people like to believe that sanctions and international uh, condemnation and international coalition building are these things that are going to stop countries from acting in their own interests. But what we have here in Ukraine is an example that throws out those sort of idealist arguments. War as uh, and as a means of resolving disputes is on the table. It's still relevant. It is not obsolete. But now the second thing we've learned, boots on the ground still hold the final say in who wins an armed conflict. Again, this the idea of fourth and fifth generational warfare, that's information warfare, that's cyber warfare. These are not forms of war in their own right. Like you could you could do a naval blockade, alright? You could win a war at sea if you sink the enemy's fleet and then start blockading them. You can win a war in the air if you bomb the enemy enough. You bomb their ports, their planes, and their industry. You can bring them to their knees. And they might surrender if it's not a, a total war, like what we saw in World War II. But, and with the army, you can march into someone's capital, and you win. You can destroy their army. You can defeat their army in the battlefield, and you win. And they have to negotiate peace. Those three, especially land and sea which have proven themselves as being ways of winning a war in their own rights, those are ways of fighting and winning a war just by themselves. You can fight and win a war with just the Navy. You can fight and win a war with just the Army. You can fight and win a war potentially with just the Air Force, although that one does technically still remain to be seen. Uh, 
But with regards to information warfare and cyber warfare, these are not forms of war in their own right. They're, they open up new avenues of attack and new lanes with which you have to defend yourself with if you want your combat forces to be effective, if you don't want to be sabotaged at home. Uh, if you don't, because there's lots of damage that can be done with uh, the a cyber attack that's well placed and well timed. You undo the flood, un undo a flood barrier, or you open up the open up the fucking gates and dam. You open up the uh, the reservoirs of a dam, and you let all that water through. Lots of people can die. You you hack a plane so that it thinks it's going. It, the the GPS tells the pilot it's going one way when you're actually flying straight into another plane. That could be terrifying. You could send people off course. They run out of fuel and they crash. These are new avenues of attack that will require new means of defense, but they are not by themselves a means of fighting and winning a war. You can do damage, but just like the airplane... You're not going to be able to win the war with just that. And while the airplane is probably more capable of fighting and winning a war in just that dimension, which is air, you're not going to be able to do that with cyber. You're not going to be able to do that with information warfare. Because people don't live in the cyber world. People don't live in a news article. People live in the real world. So if you want to get to them, you have to get to them or hit them in the real world. You can inconvenience them with a cyber warfare. You could you could drop a Boeing 150 on them. Or if it's a, a smart car in the future, you could send it off the, you could send it flying off the freeway and crashing down somewhere. But ultimately, if you want to win the war, you got to send in the the troops. You got to send in the troops. Cyber attacks, social media propaganda campaigns, they are effective in securing the narrative. They're effective in hampering in someone's ability to fight a war. But they are ultimately supplementary to, say, the infantry or the navy. And not the other way around. So, uh, so that's another thing we've learned. The third thing we've learned is that what happens over there... And this goes for Ukraine, the Middle East, Taiwan, you name it. We'll use Ukraine because Ukraine is the example today. What happens over there, in fact, does not matter over here. And I brought this up when I talked about the hysteria of Ukraine and how people will go to sleep, wake up, go to work, come back home, and nothing will change for them, even though Ukraine's at war. Nothing will change for them. But uh, what happens over there doesn't happen over here. Even though, ever since World War II, there's been this prevailing historical narrative that lots of people buy into. This narrative that if there's a war in Europe, then eventually America gets drawn in. And this narrative, over time, has expanded to include Asia, the Middle East, and has routinely been used as an excuse and as a justification for U.S. interventionism around the world. A very common iteration of this idea, you may have heard it before, is the whole 
we have to fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. This is one of the most common iterations of this idea uh, that have been spoken before. Uh, even though, even though, as a fan of history, I know that even though the last country we had to fight over here was the British Empire in 1812. That was the last country we had to fight over here that we didn't fight over there. So uh, that's just some just some history, just drop some knowledge on you. But in spite of that fact, this argument based on the historical narrative surrounding World War II and America's role in it has been used many times to advocate interventionism and world policing. And still is. Uh, but here... Courtesy of the Russo-Ukrainian War, we have a beautiful example of precisely why that historical narrative is objective trash. <laughs> How so, you might ask. Well, we're on day 12 uh, of this war, and the United States, even though this is the largest uh, war, you know, the biggest conflict, on the European continent since World War II. Not the first one since World War II. That, that'd be a number of other, like the Turkish War against Greece, the Greek War for Independence, oh, not Independence, the Greek Civil War, uh, the skirmishes between Greece and Turkey, the collapse of Yugoslavia. So, plenty of wars that have been fought in Europe. Well, skirmishes, I should say. But this is the biggest since World War II. We're on day 12 of the biggest war in Europe since World War II. And the United States has not been magically dragged into this conflict like so many have believed would happen ever since World War II. It's like, if there's war in Europe, the United States just get drawn in. That's, that's the historical narrative. Well, we can see that it's not true. It's just not true. Instead of this, the instead of America getting dragged in, like just magic, just magically we get dragged in. Instead of this, the age-old schism in America has reared its head again. That's this schism being that while the American government we have may have a propensity for interventionism, while the American government may have a propensity for interventionism. The American people, on the other hand, have a strong propensity for non-interventionism. Americans don't like having to go to other people's countries to go shoot at them. However, hoorah we may be about our military. However, we are number one, we may be about our country. We, we don't... We don't have the appetite for doing all that. We really don't like doing that. Uh, we get ripped up. We get whipped up into a frenzy very easily, as is shown by the propaganda efforts of our our own media and our own government. We're easy to get whipped up into a frenzy, as of right now. But not easy to convince is we have to go to war. You're you're gonna have a much harder time selling that. Especially at this point in the game, where we've been at almost constant war for decades now, 
and the war weariness is really starting to, it, it, not starting to, it has, the war weariness has set in, and Americans aren't, they're just not going to go. No, I'm happy, I am very happy to see the level of resistance towards the U.S. going to war in Ukraine that I've seen so far on the ground. I hope it continues, I hope it gets stronger, I hope it translates into policy, where we don't commit ourselves to the defense of other countries. It's just not in our interest to do, especially when it's thousands of miles away. Uh, but that schism, again, between the government and its interventionism and the people and our non-interventionism has opened up again. These two forces uh, have been in constant conflict since the Spanish-American War, but it is definitely nice, again, to see the resistance towards the U.S. going to war. Uh, I'm loving it. I like being a part of it, but uh, yeah, that's me. Might have different feelings towards that, and that's fine. I just think you're wrong. <laughs> but uh, and I, I I talked about this before. This unwillingness to see conflict as being worth it. And my example I brought up before was the Taiwan situation, where. If China lost a million men and entered into a decade-long depression, but they reclaimed the island of Taiwan, the Chinese people, they'd be all for it. They'd, they'd, they would lament the loss of a million men, but ultimately they'd immortalize them as heroes. Heroes of the Chinese people who laid down their lives to finally accomplish the hundred-year-long goal of national Unification. Now, that's how the Chinese would see it. They'd be perfectly fine. Now, if we lost a million men and entered into a decade-long depression, but we preserved the territorial integrity of Taiwan, the Biden administration would be lynched publicly and they'd be met with a standing ovation. Uh, there's no will or appetite among Americans to be getting into wars right now. And there's a very strong resistance among many people who are politically active. There's very strong resistance towards accepting that fact. You have people who think we have to mobilize for Cold War 2.0 with China. We have, you think people who, have, who think we have to stand up to Putin and Russia. But ultimately, neither of those two sides are going to be able to overcome the wall of anti-war that is just getting stronger and stronger the longer the forever wars go on. And the more our government keeps trying to get into wars, the greater the resistance towards going to war is going to get. And at this point, any, any idea of the United States going to war to protect Israel from Iran can just be discounted we're already at that point we're not going we're not going we're not going you you have people who do want us to but it's not gonna happen that's the point we've reached and it probably won't be much longer now before even taiwan and the asian allies who do carry their weight in terms of military defense Probably won't be long before even they get left behind. 
uh, in the minds of American opinion, and that'll be interesting to see. But um, yes, that that's a age old schism in America. That's that's not brought back, but sort of popped up again. Um, so that's very interesting things to look at, both outside and inside of America. Uh, but another thing, the uh, the sort of the, the last thing that I I've learned from this conflict, that I'll say that we've learned, are that mercenaries are officially back on the menu. Now, I'll stress that they have been used in the Middle East, uh, in Middle Eastern conflict zones for a while now. Uh, we talked on this podcast about Turkish, uh, Turkish mercenaries in Libya and Syria fighting those civil wars and but um as of now as of right now with this conflict cuz before they were under the radar but now they're out in the open i mean you have russia openly going out and trying to hire syrian troops who specialize in urban warfare to come help them out in ukraine uh, and they, they all, the Russians also have the Chechens to help them out in urban warfare operations too. So you can you combine the two, and that's a, a lethal combination. We'll see how Ukraine deals with that, but I don't know if Ukraine can. So, but we'll see. Miracles happen sometimes, but yeah, you have mercenaries who are now back on back on the menu, and we really haven't seen something like this since. What, the Thirty Years' War? That's a long time ago. Ever since the Thirty Years' War, you've had professional militaries. And those militaries have gotten bigger and bigger as logistical capacities have improved. Uh, But you did have mercenaries. They were there. After the... I was listening to an audiobook on the First World War. And... After the fighting stops in the West, the fighting sort of just picks up in the East, where you have a whole bunch of countries that just got their independence now fighting out over where exactly the border is. And you had lots of German Germans who were previously a part of the shock troopers, the stormtroopers, being hired as mercenaries to fight in these wars to secure the borders in Eastern Europe. And there was lots of fighting. There was lots of bloodshed over there. So, which also convinced me of the argument that World War One and World War Two are sort of part of a, a thirty years, a second thirty years war in that sense. Because when you see how the fighting just really just shifts from the west to the east and doesn't really stop until World War Two comes to a close. I mean, it convinced me. But we haven't seen mercenaries on the table like this since. The Thirty Years' War, and the Thirty Years' War ended in, what was it, 1648? Goodness. So, to see them back now, what, what is it, not 400 years, but damn close, we're talking 370 at least. Very strange, but I I guess this is where we're at now. Mm-hmm. I guess we learn something new every day. But 
And I'll also stress, uh, this is something that came to my mind when thinking about what this means, is that given that most of the countries who can really afford mercenaries, these are the developed countries of the world, most of those countries are entering into demographic declines where they'll be facing shrinking populations, which means shrinking manpower pools because uh, people just aren't having enough kids. So if you're having shrinking manpower pools because your population, they're shrinking in general and aging incredibly fast, well, having large professional armies that are sourced from local recruits in your country becomes less and less viable or at the very least the size of which you can field gets smaller and smaller so mercenaries who are sourced from outside your country probably may end up being used more and more as time goes on and that's that's going to be something interesting to look out for as well lots of lots of things coming out of this war and we're only on day 12 um but uh, it's i have fun talking about it and i'll have fun continuing to talk about it but as for now that is all i have for you today it's hard to believe we're only on day 12 of this incredibly important conflict and one that's probably going to define at least the next 10 to 20 years probably assuming china doesn't go after taiwan in the near future in which case the two conflicts combined will shape the next 100 years in my opinion but you have mercenaries back on the table you have uh volunteers going to ukraine you have this incredible hysterias. You have proof of concepts that fourth and fifth generation of warfare are supplementary to standard warfare that we know of. Uh, lots of theories that have been prevailing before are now sort of being put in check by reality. That, that's sort of the main theme that we're seeing here. Lots of things that we saw in abstract uh thoughts and ideas that people had in abstract are now sort of being put to the test and we're finding out oh it doesn't really work like that it still works this way or things go this way or stuff along those lines that's what we're learning and it's very interesting very very interesting but uh as as interesting it is it as interesting as it is we'll just we'll have to wait to see more i do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast folks because the world is changing it's changing fast uh this war is accelerating that pace of change but we are going to have fun watching it together now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus. Mm-hmm.